Jump in. Let's jump in. Welcome back, everyone. Good to start a new topic, a very relevant topic to our weekly, maybe even daily life. Um, And that is the laws of shul and the laws of davening. And of course, what we're going to be doing in this context, of course, is discussing these laws, especially as they pertain to women, because there is some question that could be asked. Do women, you know, is historically, historically, Women didn't go to shul very often. And in certain circles, uh, you'll find that women rarely go to shul. In certain circles, maybe they go on Rosh Hashanah Kippur, maybe for Shabbos and Varchim. Um, certainly shuls in many places, I'm talking about way back when, the shuls were built in a way that kind of didn't exactly welcome women because it was very difficult to hear anything or see anything. Um, so, or there's no women's section at all. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. E- correct. <laughs> Uh, correct, correct, right? So we are, we are proud of the fact that we have, uh, we make a lot, we, we try as best as possible to make, uh, make things welcoming for women here at Nertamid. Um, so with that in mind, so we are going to certainly be focusing on, we're going to be focusing on what a shul is. Uh, what is the, what are the restrictions? What are the, what's our, what's our mentality? What are, what is our, our behavior supposed to look like in a shul? That's number one. We're going to talk a little bit about the architecture of a shul. Things like mechitza. That's going to be a fun topic. And then we're going to talk about the laws of davening itself. What are the laws of, what are we supposed to be doing while we daven? And of course, once again, we're going to try to see those things specifically through the prism, through the perspective of how this pertains to women. Okay? So with that in mind, today, what we're going to be focusing on in the beginning is the laws of our attitude towards a shul. And, and the importance of a shul and how we're supposed to be acting in a Beit Knesset, in a synagogue, in a shul, okay? So with that, let's begin um, with source number one on your first page over there. And we're going to just, just read the one line uh, where it's bracketed. You see that's where there's a bracket in the middle or kind of towards the end of that paragraph. There's Aleph Reish. Amar Rav Yitzchak. This is from a Gemara in Brachos. The Gemara in Brachos talks about the importance of shul. And it says, Amar Rav Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak says, Minayin she'akadosh baruchu matzoi bebeit haknesset. How do we know that God is found in a shul, in a synagogue? How do we know that God is found there? Shenemar, as it says, Elokim nitzav badas kel. God stands or is standing in a place where there is a gathering of God. Okay, so that's a verse. And the commentator and the Gemara understands from that verse that God is standing in the place where we are gathering or regularly gathering for davening. God is standing there. And the commentators point out that it doesn't just mean that God comes when a minion is there, that when we gather to daven that God is there. No, but the place that is designated for a gathering of God, that's a place that God is already there. Okay, so meaning conceptually, you know, and Rav, uh, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik describes the sanctity and the importance of a shul. He describes it in, in his, in, he's writing this in a Hebrew essay. He writes, Pikisha uh, Romanti. Okay, guess what Romanti means in English? Okay, romantic, right? So he says, it is a romantic encounter. He says, it's a date. You know, and basically, I'm going to, I'm not, this is not exactly the terminology he uses, but if you have a date with someone that you love, you know, there are two ways you could connect to that person. Okay, one, you could, you know, you could, you could call them. You know, and they'll answer the phone and you'll talk. Or if they've invited you, you could go to their home. You could go and connect to them uh, in a place of closeness, in a place that where, where, where there's a sense of endearment. So God has a place where he is found. God is found in the shul. Can we daven anywhere? Sure. You could daven almost anywhere. We'll talk about some of the limitations. You could daven in your home. You could daven in your outside. You could daven on a train, in a plane, anywhere. But it's a, what is davening? Davening is an encounter, a date with God. 
And so when you dive in elsewhere, it's kind of like picking up the phone and calling him. You'll connect, but you're speaking to God at a distance. Obviously, the more ideal way of connecting to God is, quote unquote, in person, right? Is going to God's home and speaking to him there. That is the importance of a shul. And so that's very important because when we think of shul, what do we normally think of? The reason I come to shul is for what? Is because there's a minion. There we say Kedusha. There we have a Sefer Torah. And what this Gemara over here is telling us is perhaps it's, it's more than that. There's something about the sanctity of a shul itself, independent of a minion, independent of having a group of people davening, there's something about going to the house of God to daven there. And the truth is, this is codified in Allah. If you look at source number two, and here it's going to be spelled out, uh, if you look at the underlined uh, uh, line in number two, a person is, let's say, praying on their own. Okay, so there is no minion. Uh, you know, there, for whatever reason, there's no minion. Af al nonetheless, yispalel beves haknesas. A person should daven in shul. One of my favorite things, there's someone who occasionally will come here before the school comes here. Uh, he does an all-night shift sometimes uh, for, for uh, he's, a, he's a medical profession. He does an all-night shift and sometimes I'll catch him in our shul. He, he's, his shift finishes after a minion. It's before our school comes, so the door's open and the shul's open. And he's at, it's a quiet place for any, he missed minion. But he comes to Davin in our shul because there is value, even when you're praying alone, to Davin in a shul. Okay, so this is something which, again, we don't think about, but, but this, again, we just quoted the source number two, excuse me, was a source from the Shulchan Aruch. This is Jewish code of law, codified in Jewish law, that a shul is significant independent of all the holy things that we do together, all the singing and all the sermons and all the learning and all the Torah. A shul is of God's home. Talking to him there is qualitatively different than speaking to God anywhere else. And therefore, even if you're on your own, you should, ideally, if you can, daven in a shul. Sarah, was that a hand? Or? No, okay. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. If you have the opportunity, if it's practical, again, if it's practical, again, one could daven anywhere, but to say, is there a difference between davening at home or davening at shul? The answer is absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, shul, it's, it's God's home again. And some people may feel more personally comfortable davening in their home, in their own corner. You know, I have, have I, I don't know, I have my place where I like to daven. I daven at home and all that. Granted, granted, but, but you know, uh, conceptually, a shul is a better place to daven. Yeah, yes. You always see in movies, um, Catholic movies, whatever, someone always seems to go to the church and pray. By themselves, right, 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 right. So we never, ever thought about just coming... Sure, like you miss, um, you know, the, the time for the minion and mm-hmm. just go. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I know, well, Shomri's got the little code, so you can go mm-hmm. at any time. Right. And stuff, but just go and... Yeah, there's really, there's, there's truly value. I guess we're going to get more, more Jewish movies and, and start uh, directing them. But no, 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 you're right. We it's not our image. Shul is an image of, of a minion. Agreed, 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 agreed. Yeah, but it's, yeah. No, because we have a school, so just for security purposes, we're not able to, to leave it open. But before the school opens, I forget that, I don't know the exact times, but uh, before the school opens, the shul is open, but after that, we just have to close it, just so we can't have adults walking around, or anyone walking around. But if you buzz, if the shul, if the school is going, they don't use They the, might, right, depend, right, right. If you look, if you look safe. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so that's number one. Number one, we understand a shul, in de- a shul is important independent of a minion. Why? It's God's home. 
With that in mind, let's now start learning some of the halachos, some of the laws about if we're in God's home, you know, there are rules when you go to people's homes, right? You go to, to the White House, there's etiquette. You go to, uh, you go to uh, Buckingham Palace, you, you bet there's a lot of etiquette, right? Uh, I remember still uh, as, a, as a Canadian, this was such a big deal when, um, who is it? I think it was Michelle Obama put her arm around the queen. Like, okay, this was, in Americans didn't even register, but in Canada, you know, we're part of the, the Commonwealth, this was like the biggest deal in the world because you do not put your arm around the queen. It is, inex- you know, unexcus- inexcusable, etc. fine, whatever. Bottom line is there's etiquette, there's etiquette, certainly you're in the house of God, there's a certain etiquette, right? So that's what we're going to be focusing on. If we understand that a shul is a house of God, then there are certain rules. And again, what the rules we're going to be studying today are independent of dominant. We're talking about a shul, whether or not davening is going on, there are certain rules of etiquette. We're going to get to the rules of davening. Today, we're focusing on the rules of etiquette in a house of Hashem, okay? Ah, good question. So for all intents and purposes, so keep, back in the day, historically, it would seem that their shuls were a one home building, one room structure, right? So when they say Beit Knesset or Beit Medrash, what they, were meaning, what they refer to is the room where all the action is taking place. Uh, by action, I mean spiritual action, not the not the, the social hall and things of that nature. We'll see there are some limitations, but far less pronounced uh, for the rest of the shul. But for, for our discussions, they were talking about the sanctuary. Okay, so let's begin. So there's a Pasuk in Vayikra, Perak Chav Vav, Pasuk Beis, this is source number three, Es Shabsosai Tishmoru, okay, so it says you should keep my Shabbos, Umikdashi Tirau, and you should literally fear or be in awe of my sanctuary. Ani Hashem, I am God. Now the simple read of the verse is this referring to what? Referring to Mikdashi, my sanctuary refers to the Beit HaMikdash, or the Mishkan, God's home, capital H. This is God's home. That's where the, the verse is clearly in reference to the Mishkan which is being built or was just built. And God is saying, keep Shabbos, you have the certain, okay, what the connection is, we're not going to get in today, but basically there's a, there's a directive to keep Shabbos, and you should be in a fear, you should, you should have awe of my Migdash, of my sanctuary. And again, the simple understanding is the Mishkan or the Beit HaMikdash, or the Beit HaMikdash. However, the Sforno, Rabbi Vadya Sforno, he is one of the classic commentators on the Chomish, uh, writing in the, you know, in the 15th century, I believe it is. He writes, Migdashai Tirau, Okay, he says, and this is the, the finer print in source number three. What does it mean, my, my holy place, you should be in awe of? He says, it is the places which are made holy when we are in exile. And it's a reference to all shul, synagogues, and study halls. So the Sforno understands, the simple understanding of the verse is not limited to the temple, to the Mishkan, to the base of Megdash, or the, the tabernacle, right? But rather, it's a reference to any place of holiness, right? Like a shul or a study hall, a base medrash. So he understands this Pasuk is actually telling us that there is a biblical prohibition or biblical directive to be in awe of or to act in reverence in a shul. Okay, so we'll see right now in a moment, there is a debate whether or not this idea of having reverence for a shul is actually biblical. Is, is the Sforno's read, is the Sforno's interpretation accepted by all? As we'll see, some do accept this and understand that we have a biblical, it's one of the mitzvos, according to some, that we actually have to be in reverence of a shul. According to others, the, his read of this pasuk is incorrect and really it's a rabbinic, uh, a rabbinic mitzvah. Yes, John. Okay. I mean, Mikdashi, first of all, Mikdashi is like one Mikdash. Not Mikdashai, right? Right, right, right. And where does he get that? Oh, yeah, by the way, that also counts 
accounts for any little building you build that uh, you stop is Jewish? I mean. Yeah, it's a fair, it's a fair question. It's a fair question. Um, I, I don't have clarity in terms of how he gets this. You know, Mikdash, someone, someone did have some grammatical point that he made to me the other day, and I'm trying to remember it. One second. Yeah, um, right. Mikdash, would be, right. Yeah, I, I, I'll leave it at that. It's a good question. In other words, what, what, what compels the Sforno, and we'll see others, to understand this verse this way? The simple understanding is Mikdash. The Mikdash, meaning capital M, the Mikdash, the Beit Mikdash, okay? And we'll see, uh, as we'll see, the, the, if, let's just jump to source number five for a second. Um, and the source number five is in line with the way that Shelley's understanding it. So this is the Ran. He is one of the medieval commentators, and he's writing this as a commentary on Tractate Megillah. He says, nearly. Source number five, we skipped four for a second. It appears to me, de Beis HaKnesses, that's the abbreviation, the Shul, ude Kavase, and things like a Shul. Kivan she'ikaro asui lomar bo davar shebikdusha. Since its main function, it is made primarily to say holy things in it. In other words, we construct a shul for the for the primary purpose of doing holy things. Itilu bo chachamim kedusha midivram. The sages placed holiness, a sanctity, in the shul. Right, so the Ran is understanding, this is rabbinic. The rabbis, are, again, the, according to the Ran, this, the Rabbeinunism, it's an abbreviation for Rabbeinunism, he understands? No, the biblical verse is the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash, this is, okay, we have a holy place. It's a place which is primarily used for holy things. The sages understood that logic would dictate we should treat it with reverence, but it's rabbinic. Number four, let's go, go, go back to number four for a second. However, the Smak, okay, the Sefer Mitzvos Kitanos, a uh, very, very influential book of Halacha, he has, it's a short, it's a, it's a book where he lists the 613 mitzvos. And mitzvah ches, the eighth mitzvah, according to him, if you look at source number four, lira mikdash, the fear of sanctuary. Dichsiv, as it's written, et mikdashai tirau, that you should fear, you should be in reverence of my mikdash. Uvizmana zeh, nowadays, beisakneses, the shol, mikdash me'at, it is a small mikdash. It is considered not small in terms of size, but rather small in terms of stature. And therefore says the smak, the Sefer Mitzvah's Kitanos, that the shul is included in that biblical verse. So we have a debate over here. Is it one of the 613 mitzvahs that you should be in reverence of shul, according to some opinions? the Svorno, the Smak, and others understand, no, it is not biblical, but it's rabbinically instituted. I don't know of any practical difference between these two approaches, but just so you should know, some understand that there is a biblical mandate to be in reverence of a shul, and some understand that it's rabbinically instituted. One way or another, everyone agrees that there is an obligation to be in reverence or to act reverentially in a shul. And again, we haven't yet defined what that looks like. We'll see that Gemara is going to give us parameters what that reverence actually looks like. Yes, Stephen. So, 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 what is defined as a shul? So it's a good question. It would have to be a place which is consistently designated for davening. Okay? Uh, that's the definition of basic analysis. Even if the Sefer Torah was for some reason not there, it would still be it. Whereas, just to, to you know, this is, uh, this is a little knock on, uh, you know, the... You know, over COVID, this became, you know, house binyanim have becoming much more trendy in the past, you know, decade or so, as it is, uh, probably due to sociological reason. You know, we're much more into our own independence, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly over the past two years, become really, really trendy. There is a difference. There is a qualitative difference between a place which is always, con- you know, consecrated 
for a shul as opposed to a home, which you're, you know, sometimes it's your, you know, living room and your TV room and whatever, and sometimes it's your shul. There is a difference. Again, God hears us everywhere, but again, it's the difference between, and even if you bring a Sefer Torah there, it still has a qualitative difference. It doesn't have the name base Hakanesas. Yes? Sometimes mm-hmm. for davening, for classes, for right. things and stuff like that. So, and there aren't doors there that it's mm-hmm. not a solid wall. Right. So, would this room maybe? So, so, it doesn't have the definition of a base because it is not a room. Clearly, a social hall by definition is meant for social purposes. It does, as we'll see, some of the later post. No one spoke about such rooms or really extensively earlier on. Uh, we'll see some of the later authorities who discuss these rooms do discuss having some elevated uh, holiness, but certainly not the same. We do still do not define this as a basic nessus. Basic nessus is the sanctuary and the sanctuary alone. Okay? So with that in mind, so again, we have, let's just quickly review, we have the notion that a shul is God's home. Because of that, we have a directive to be in reverence of it, whether it's biblical or rabbinic is a debate. And now let's turn the page, go to source number six, and we'll see some of the parameters about how are we supposed to act in a shul, okay? Um, Warning, okay? It might change your shul behavior, okay? Just a heads up, okay? Um, that's, so yeah, I'm excited. Okay, let's go. So, so this Gemara over here is going to frame for us, as we'll see, a number of different types of behaviors, okay? So Tanur the Gemara Megillah tells us, this is source number six, Bate Knesiot, shuls, synagogues. Ein nohagin bahen kalus rosh. We don't act, kalus rosh literally means light-headedness, okay? How do you define light-headedness? Okay, it doesn't mean getting dizzy and passing out from the pulpit. Okay, lightheadedness. Sorry, couldn't resist. Okay, lightheadedness uh, would seem to be things which are frivolous. You know, it means like endless, like joking or, you know, joking. Like, I, 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 there's no like good English word. I was trying to find like a good English word. Like, kibbutz, like intrinsic kibitzing, sitting around basically having like a conversation which is not necessarily a meaningful conversation, which is a little, again, very hard to define, I think. And I, I'm going to speak at least for many of us. Our most serious conversations kind of vacillate. You could have a very serious conversation. I don't know about you, but sometimes there's a joke here. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's light, so it goes back to serious. But a conversation which is dedicated to something which is completely just sitting around, shooting the breeze, but nothing, it, nothing meaningful whatsoever, that would seem to be within the general category of Kalos Rosh. Again, I struggle to give you a perfect definition of it, but maybe there's like what we call the smell test. There is different type, and there's another type of conversation, which is meaningful. You know, we're talking about how things are going, how's life, you know, what, what, what's new, you know, like that. That's not Kalos Rosh, right? That's a more what we'll call perhaps a neutral type of conversation. Kalos Rosh means it's really just empty, okay? And again, hard to, to categorize perfectly, but I think it's one of those things where if we're honest with ourselves, we, we know it when we see it type of, type of thing, okay? That would seem to be category number one. Then the Gemara, yes. It's a good question. It's a good question. I struggle with this. I'll be honest. Well, we'll see. I mean, we're going to have many practical questions in just a moment, but, but there's a quite Look, I, I, you know, I, I make jokes from the pulpit, right? Is that, is that allowed? Is that not allowed? Good question, right? So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, if I'm being honest myself, I'd have to say I, I'm not a thousand percent sure where exactly we draw the line. Um, I, I would, I would Im, you know, uh, and again, maybe defensively say that if it's in the context of trying to build towards something which is meaningful, okay, and that perhaps the same would be true for perm. If it's going to be something which is somewhat light, but it has a religious context and whatever, then maybe we wouldn't call, would we call that Kalos Rosh? 
again, it depends on the behavior. I don't know. I think you have to scrutinize each each uh, each type of activity in and of itself. Yes. Is this yes. Yes, yes. That means right now, if you go into the shul and you have to take a call and it's your friend who wants to just uh, tell you the, I don't know, whatever, whatever it's going to be, that would be included. Exactly. So we're going to want to emphasize, we're not talking about davening today. We're talking about a building. We're talking about a building which has sanctity and because of that, we have to treat it with reverence. Is there another hand? Yes, Sean. There, there, there are there are words for jokes, okay. and there's words for what is clearly seen as like a negative term of, of, of humor. So, late sanuts, which is one which is like more like scoffing and scorn, um, or hitul, which is actually the term the Shulchan Aruch uses in def- hitul. Okay, uh, I believe that's Aramaic. I believe, um, which again has those darker, more negative connotations, as opposed to, but yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I, I agree. I agree. But I want to also be honest with myself, meaning like, where do you draw the... Yes. Meaning, I'll, I'll just, just... There's precedence. Meaning, in the ba- base Medrash, we have Gemaras, which say that, uh, was it, Rava would begin his lecture with Milsa de Bidichusa. He'd begin his lectures with a joke. Okay? I had one rabbi who took this very seriously. He had a joke book. It was like in third grade. He had a joke book, and every day he'd begin like his class by reading one of these corny jokes, and fine. That's what he did. Uh, but so clear... And that's the Bidichusa, which doesn't have a negative connotation. It has... A lighter connotation, just a sense of like joke, but it doesn't mean like there's a sense of, uh, again, something, again, which I'm still having a hard time to perfectly define, but something which is just seen as just cynicism and, and, and late, again, late sonus is, has like a, like a more of a negative, just, and just completely not going anywhere. It's, it's not going anywhere. Frivolity, yeah, just straight frivolity as opposed to. I hear, I hear. It has other associations. I understand, I understand. Yeah, so, but, but again, I think, I think we have a general, general, general sense. We'll see. It may not even be so important because I want to, let's finish the rest of the Gemara because we'll see. The Gemara is now going to go into another category of things which are clearly not as disrespectful because what does the Gemara continue and say? Ein ochlin bahen. You don't eat in a synagogue, in a shul. Vein shosin bahen. You don't drink in a shul. Okay, let's keep on reading for a second. Vein neosin bahen. You don't, literally this means to adorn yourself, okay? This seems to be more, it seems to be like a reference to like, you know, making your tie or uh, doing your hair, you know, as opposed to something which, again, you know, nowadays, I don't know, we have a much more casual society, but I imagine like 30 years ago, it would be very strange if I was sitting in an office and making my tie in the office, just, I don't know, like in, in front of like the rest of my colleagues. I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, but, but, you know, some, something like that where I'm doing something which is really like, Again, obviously not getting undressed, but more like something you would normally do off to the side, okay? Vein metailin behen, you don't walk around in them. This presumably does not mean you don't pace when you dive in, but it means more like just taking a stroll, uh, which by the way, something we're going to have to revisit. I'm sure many of you at different times in life maybe have gone on tours of shoals. Maybe you went to some places in Europe and saw some, some shoals and, you know, walked through these shoals. So is that included in this, this idea of strolling through the shoal, right? You're not going there to pray. You're just walking around in them, 
right? Is that problematic? We'll revisit, we'll, we'll get there. Let's, let's hold off on that. We'll come back to that, 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 that point. You don't enter into the shoal in the heat because of the heat. Or when it's raining because of rain. Meaning we cannot use a shoal as a place to protect us from the elements. Okay? And let, let's, before we get to the last one, let's just, let's just pause here for a second. This category of things, this category, eating, drinking, uh, walking around in them, uh, going into them from the heat or the rain, are those things which are intrinsically disrespectful? No. You know, Kalus Roche is, you know, something which is intrinsically disrespectful. It's something which is just like... It's just, again, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not using words. It's narishkeit. Yeah, again, there's a lot of Yiddish words. Shmaying, narishkeit, leitzana, uh, I don't know, uh, machin around, I don't know. These things have like a negative, all negative connotation. Going in because it's raining or walking around in them or, uh, or, or eating or drinking, those things are intrinsically negative. They're more what we'll call neutral activities, okay? And we're still told you cannot even do neutral things. The implication of this Gemara is... The implication of this Gemara is that you could only do sacred things, holy things, right? The implication of this Gemara, in other words, when we read this Gemara, it comes out, it seems to come out, if I can paint very broadly, that there are three different categories of activities. There are holy activities, davening, learning, okay? That's holy activities. There are frivolous or negative activities, right? Which is kalus rosh, this lightheadedness, the frivolity. And then there's more neutral activities, what the Gemara over here is telling us is you could only do holy activities in Shul. Anything neutral, food, drink, anything neutral cannot be done in Shul. And certainly not Kalus Rosh. Certainly not lightheadedness. That's what the Gemara, face value, seems to say. That the only thing you could do in a Shul, a Shul is, again, it's God's home. It makes sense, right? Before we think about all our, wait a second, why do we do X, Y, or Z, which we'll get to, right? Uh, but the first thing it sounds like when you read this Gemara is that the only thing you could really be doing in Shul is sacred activity. Anything neutral cannot and should not be done. Yes? Good. Neither is it when the adults are running around and schmoozing and whatever. I mean, I, I, yeah. Correct. 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 Yeah. 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 I, I, right. I, I say when, when we when we fix when we make sure the adults have the kavod based knesset, then we'll start working on the children. <laughs> I know, but you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. In other words, is that some? I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. But 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 uh, but but is is beta, right? So is running around in a shul is that is that kalos rosh? It would seem to be. Again, I'm not saying that they're you know they're children or whatever. I'm not saying that they're you know they're do, you know. But but yeah, we should prevent them from doing that. That would be some form of presumably kalos rosh. Yes. Right, well, ain't ochlem right? How could we drink in them? I mean, look, and you've probably been to shuls, you've probably been to shuls where they turn their shul over. You know, we are very blessed. We have a large facility, and when we finish davening, we can come out here, usually, and have a kiddush. Wonderful. But I'm sure you've been to places where they finish davening, and or they, before they finish davening, they transform their shul into a social hall, right? And they eat or they drink, right? So is that allowed? And even with, within these categories, right? When, it, when it's telling us, you know, you can't eat, you know, so, right? So there, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Or every time, let's ask ourselves a question. Every time we've shown a video in our shul or shown a lecture, which is not necessarily... Torah based, right? We certainly wouldn't do anything which would be inappropriate in our sanctuary, right? I hope uh, in a sanctuary, but 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 we've certainly done things which I would say are in the neutral category. I imagine, right? Is that permitted? Is that permitted, right? So if we're reading this Gemara face value, the answer is a big fat no. 
big, strong no. Uh, where the, the answer is no, absolutely not. We cannot do anything other than sacred activity in a show. Okay, let's read another Gemara, and this is where things get quite complicated. And today, I'm going to complicate things, okay? Next week, we're going to uh, do, some, uh, do some resolutions. Today, we're going to leave off with a lot of questions, but we're going to learn a Gemara, uh, a very, very important, uh, a Gemara that, that, that sheds a lot of light on this. So, we just read a, uh, a Brisa. A Brisa, again, is, is written around the same time as the Mishnah, uh, around the year 300 or so. And the Mishnah, basically, it's somewhat equivalent to a Mishnah. Mishnah we're familiar with. It was written by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And it seems like there's certain teachings that, that were collected that didn't make it into his cut. Okay, so Yehuda Hanasi wrote the Mishnah. And then there's something, there are other collected teachings which didn't make the cut. Okay, they're called Brisas. Brisa from the word bar. Bar means, not sun, but in Aramaic, bar means outside. It's the outside, it's the things which are on the outside. They didn't make it into the Mishnah, so they're not as... Uh, they're seen as a little bit less important than the Mishnah, but they also play significance. And these brisos are oftentimes quoted in the Mish- in the Gemara. And if they're quoted in the Gemara, they're usually that means that the Gemara is giving an endorsement to this teaching. So what we just read was a brisa, and now the Gemara, okay, written a few hundred years later, is going to be analyzing this teaching. Okay, so says Rav- so if you look at source number seven, okay, and again here's where things get a little bit complicated. So let's hold on tight. Amar of Asi, Rav Asi says, Bate Knesiot. Shoals, synagogues, Shebebavel, which are in Babylonia. Okay, keep in mind, back in the day when the Gemara is written, there are essentially two communities. There are Jews all over the place already at this point, but effectively there are two major communities. There is Eretz Yisrael, there are Jews living in Israel, mostly in the north already at this point, and there are Jews living in Babylon. Okay, that's it. Okay, again, those are the major centers. It's not true, that's it, because there are Jews living all over. But the major centers of Judaism are Bavel, Babylonia, and Eretz Yisrael. So Rav Asi says, shoals that are made in Bavel, Altenai Hain Asuyin. They are made with a stipulation. They are made with a stipulation. We'll see what the stipulation is in just a moment. The Afal PK nonetheless, Ain Nohagin Bahen Kalasrosh. Even though they're made with a stipulation, we still don't do frivolous things in a show. So what's this stipulation? Look to the left to Rashi over here. You see the Rashi script? Altenai. What is the stipulation? Almanas on condition that the shuls will be used. So what is he saying? What we're saying over here is Ravasi saying that outside of Israel, in Bavel, shuls were made with a stipulation. When they built the shul, there was a explicit or implicit stipulation. We'll get back to that question. But some form of a stipulation that the shul could be used for other purposes, not just category holy activities, but also for neutral activities. Still, even with that stipulation, you can't engage in kalut rosh. You can't engage in frivolous, dis, you know, disrespectful activity, but category number two would be allowed. Stop the Gemara over here. We answered our questions, right? Because if you stop the Gemara over here, what does it tell us? That shoals in Bavel, now we don't live in Bavel, but presumably this is not limited to Babylonia alone. It means outside of Israel. All the shoals are made with a stipulation that you're allowed to do neutral, that they're built with the intention that they, you're allowed to do neutral activities in the shoal, right? And therefore, that would justify if you're showing a movie, assuming it's, you know, a G-rated movie, you know, whatever, it's not something which is inappropriate, but it's, 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 it's educational. That's neutral, it's not holy, but it's educational. It's nice, it's good, it's important, 100%. If you want to have a kiddush in your sanctuary, 100%. Any of those activities would be allowed because al tanai. Hain Asuyan, they are made with a stipulation. We'll see later, there's a debate. Do you actually have to verbalize the stipulation or is it implicit? 
right? One can make an argument. Certainly, a shul, uh, many, uh, you know, a shul, many shuls were built with the implicit understanding that I'm, I'm sure if we were to ask the people who built our shul, they would tell you they understood that our shul was going to be the sanctuary was going to house movies and different talks, lectures, etc., which are not. So there's an implicit stipulation whether they verbalized it or not. Good, we're fine. The problem is the rest of the Gemara. So let's see the rest of the Gemara, and you'll tell me what the problem is yourselves. Now the Gemara continues by quoting the Mishnah, which said that you're not allowed to adorn yourself. Okay, that was a quote from the, the Brisa that we saw earlier. And then Amar Rava, Rava is speaking, Rava says, The sages and, the, the, and, the, and, the, and their students, they are allowed to adorn themselves in a shul, and presumably they're allowed to eat and drink in a shul. They're allowed to do these activities. Why? Da Amar Rav Yeshua ben Levi. Rav Yeshua ben Levi says, okay, he says that, the, you know, the, the term that they use for a study hall is the house of the rabbis, implying that it's, you know, this is their home, implying that they're allowed to do certain activities. So basically, forget, you know, Ravah comes along and says, even though you're not allowed to eat and drink in there, but the sages are allowed to do so. Now, what's the question you should be asking? What gives them the, so the, what gives them the right? There seems to be some extra, you know, they're in there all day. We need to give them some uh, dispensation so that they're not going to, you know, disturb their, their, their uh, you know, their studies. It gives them more time to study. Fine. That, that would see, there seems to be, a, we, could, we could justify a logical reason why we'll be more lenient with the sages, I think. But what should be bothering you? Where does Rava live? Rava is a, a, an Amora. He lives presumably in Bavel, right? Now we just said that all the synagogues in Bavel are made with a stipulation, meaning you're therefore allowed to do neutral activities. And then Rava comes along and says, oh, the sages are allowed to do neutral activities. Woo, what are you talking about? A line ago, we just said, everyone can do neutral activities. Why is he highlighting the sages alone? Right? You with me? In other words, if the synagogues are made, if the shoals are made with a stipulation, that means that everyone could go, I can make my tie in the shoal. You could go ahead and what, you know, whatever. You could, you could eat. All the neutral activities are allowed. You can't do Kalos Rosh, but all the neutral activities are allowed. But then Rebbe comes along and says, the sages are allowed to do neutral activities. It doesn't sound like it. Again, presume, we would, if we take a statement at face value, he's, he's speaking to a, a Babylonian audience, presumably, It'd be hard to understand. Let's go on. There's another, another, another part of the Gemara which is, makes this even more complicated. So now the Gemara continues, third paragraph. You're not allowed to enter the shul in the sun because of the sun, meaning to get away from the heat or in the, in the rain, to get away from the rain. One of the places where I studied in, um, in Israel, they did not have uh, air conditioning. We our yeshiva was in Ashdod, which is pretty hot. Um, and they did not have air conditioning in the rooms. The only place they had air conditioning was the base medrash, okay? So it was incentivizing you to learn, but you have to go and learn, right? You can't go in to just, because you're boiling hot, which we were quite often, uh, just to go to, to, to cool off. That would be inappropriate, right? That's what we saw in the Brisa. However, okay, but again, what we just learned, let's just pause over here. Remember, what did Ravasi say though? According to Ravasi, if a synagogue, if a shul is made, al-tanai, with the stipulation, are you allowed to enter because to cool off? The answer should be, yes. Cooling off is not a intrinsically disrespectful thing. Yeah, I, I, whatever, it's neutral, I'm just sitting there, right? So let's read the story over here. Ki Ravina of Ada bar Masna. Okay, so a story about Ravina, okay, and Rav Ada, the son of Masna. Havukaimi v'shali she'ilta me Rava. They were asking questions of Rava. Asa zilcha de mitra. A, uh, a wind of rain came by. It started raining. They were, near to a, they were near a shul, and so it starts raining, so they enter the shul. Okay? But Amri, they say, 
Before they walked in, you have to realize when you're a rabbi in, in, in Babylonia, and certainly in some, some of this day, certainly in certain circles, there's like paparazzi running after you. And if you do something, they're going to like codify it. So like, oh, he tied his left shoe first. Or whatever, you know, everything gets codified, whatever you do. So before they walk into the shul, they turn around to all the paparazzi, all the people chasing them and say, that that we're going in the shul, la mishum mitra, it's not because of the rain. It's because because to learn, you need a clear mind. So they're saying the reason we're entering the shul right now, it's raining. The reason we're entering the shul is so because since we're learning, and it's hard to learn while it's raining, it's hard to concentrate, that's why we're entering the shul. But we're not just entering because of the rain. That's the statement they make before they go into the shul. And again, what's the question we should be asking? Right. Why do they have to justify it? We just, again, Rava, Ravina, of Adabar Masna, they are all Babylonians. They live in Bavel. If it's raining, we just said, in Bavel, in Babylonia, all shoals are made, or the shoals are made, Altanai, with the stipulation you're allowed to do neutral activity. So why do they have to, before, oh, let me justify, let me rationalize why I'm going into the shoal. They don't have to do that. You could go into a shoal for the rain. It's totally mutter. It's totally allowed. Right? So what's going on over here? The first Gemara tells us, right? So we have, let's, let's review. We had a Brisa which said you can't do um, disrespectful activity and you can't do neutral activity. Then we had Rav Asi come along and said, okay, but neutral activity in Bavel, it's allowed because the synagogues, the shoals are made outside with the stipulation. Then you have two stories or statements which seem to contradict the first statements because they're both saying, oh, no, no. Only sages could do these things, but everyone else can't. Well, why not? You just made a, you said there's a stipulation. And then the next story, you have even sages going ahead, and they're not going to enter because of the rain or whatever. They say, oh, we're only going because we're learning. But if it wasn't because of that, we wouldn't even do these neutral activities. So again, we have a contradiction over here in this last Gemara. Can you do neutral activities in a shul outside of Israel or not? That's the question. Okay? How would you reconcile this contradiction over here? Thoughts? It's too early? What are you thinking? Yes? Well, in Israel, Right. Right. So you're touching upon something which I haven't, we haven't, which, 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 which is an important point, which we haven't explained at all. And that is, what you're touching upon is, what, what's the deal over here? If, if there is a stipulation, why is there a difference between Bavel and Eretz Yisrael? Okay, so, so we have to, we're going to return to that question because you're, you're touching upon a very good point. Like ultimately, and, and clearly you're right, it has to do something with Mashiach, based on Migdash, something, but we haven't really, we haven't, so that's another, another layer to this Gemara which has to be addressed in the first line. Why this distinction between Israel and out of Israel? Okay, but let's, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that question, probably not a little bit today, more uh, next week as well. But the fundamental question, if shoals are made with a stipulation allowing us to do neutral activity, why does this Gemara imply that these rabbis did not want to do neutral activity? Sarah, what are you guys? No? So, you know, so that's why we have a lawyer. Right. <laughs> so, so the Mm-hmm. Or the miserable heat, 
Right. So you're saying maybe the way to reconcile this Gemara is to say the first statement is not a reference to the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary. It's a reference to the outer areas alone. Right. Right. And I believe there are, I believe there might be one opinion who does reconcile the Gemara in that fashion. It's not, most do not because most shoals back then were the one room synagogue. So therefore, if you have one Gemara that says you could do neutral activities, and then you have another Gemara that says you cannot do neutral activities, it's a little, unless you say what you're saying, which again, I think there is an opinion that does say that. We're not going to see that today because it's, I, I believe there might be one opinion that does say something along those lines. But the simple read of the Gemara implies, Beis HaKnesses means... That one room. So. It's also, you know, like mental preparation. When you walk in, yeah. you know, walking into the show. Right. There is a Right, right, and we're, we're gonna we're gonna get into those details as well about what those two separate two separate rooms are going to be. Whether other uh, yes, and then yeah. First, it, the Beit Hamikdash had, you know, when you see it had rooms. Yeah. And stuff. So I don't know why they only made one versus you know Beit Knesset, but also um, it's sort of like when a child has his hair cut. And they do ceremonies, and they put honey on the letters, and they give them candy for a sweet kind of thing. So right. maybe that they wanted it to be so that people would think of it as a good place, not just, you know, for... Dominating Cor- correct. So, so let, let's let's be clear. First, we could justify we could justify using a shul for month, you know what we'll call neutral activities. I, I don't. To me, I'm not bothered by that question. What I'm bothered by is the the inconsistency in the in the, in the Gemara. Meaning, one implication of the Gemara says you cannot. One says you can. I could just. We could argue a good argument for either side. The problem is. What is the Gemara's position? The Gemara, we'd assume, has some intrinsic consistency, and assuming it doesn't say it's a debate, we'd expect there to be consistency. So you're right. If one were to say, the, ta- the Gemara would say, we could do neutral activities, I'd say, yeah, it's good. We want people to feel comfortable, etc. If it says no, I'd say, yeah, we want people to feel reverent. I could justify the way the Gemara seems to contradict itself, and that's what, 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 the, what the medieval commentators we'll see in a moment are going to be addressing. Yeah. Ah. So then you have to give them, you have to say, oh, but they can do this. Okay, okay, so good. So let's, let's look at source number eight. Let's start addressing this question. We'll see, good. And we'll, we'll, we'll see one source which says something along those lines. Um, and when we do so, we'll, we'll see, and this is where we get a little complicated, there are three different ways to read this statement, okay? Three different ways. We're not going to, well, let's, 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 let's begin. So three different ways. So the first is the Orzarua, and this says something along the lines of what Lisa was just saying. The Orzarua says, and this is source number eight, Amri Hai Dailin That that they went to the Shul, Lamishu Mitra, 
So that that these rabbis stated before they walked in the shul, oh, we're going to the shul, not because it's raining, but because we're learning, to justify their actions. Not that they had to, like you were saying, it's similar. They were just being stringent. His, he has an easy way of reading the Gemara. He says that the reason that it says that they went into the shul to, to block themselves the rain, really they could have just went in to block themselves the rain, but they were being stringent on themselves and therefore, really, a normal person could enter a shul because the rain. The rabbis were saying, oh, we only go in because it's rain, or, you know, because we're learning. But really, technically speaking, anyone's allowed to go in to protect themselves from the rain. Yes? Good. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think you do find there's an interesting, I, I don't know, I, I don't have enough, uh, you know, there, there's a distinction made in the Gemara between appropriate stringencies and inappropriate stringencies. There is actually a rule, um, it's, it's codified, that a person could do certain things and michzi kiyura, you appear arrogant. Okay? It's interesting, right? There's basically, there's stringencies where Prolik Mara says, this is an inappropriate stringency. If you do this, it's true. It's being strict, but you're coming across as arrogant. So the Gemara does at times distinguish between these types of stringencies. It wouldn't be out of the order. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be stra- totally strange to, to codify a stringency saying this is an appropriate stringency for a person to, to take on. Well, we can understand that. We should treat a shoal in a better way, but maybe I don't necessarily have to. That would seem to be the way that the Orzaru is understanding it. So let's read the next paragraph. All those things which are forbidden in the shoals of, 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 of Israel. They're all allowed in a shul in Bavel. Hilkach, therefore, Therefore, we're allowed to eat and drink nowadays. We're allowed to eat and drink in our shuls, in our base medrash. Because they're made with stipulation. So the Orzaruah's approach, very simple and makes us all happy. If you want to leave now, you'll walk away with the biggest leniency of the different opinions. He says, listen, really, or shul, like Ravasi said in the beginning of that Gemara, shuls are made with a stipulation. You could eat in a shul. You could drink in a shul. You could go into a shul because the heat. You could go into the shul because the rain. You could walk around in a shul. You could take a tour of a shul. All that's fine. You can't do frivolous activities, but everything else is allowed. Okay? Ah, oh, why did the rabbis seemingly, why do they, you know, have this stringent, well, why do they say, we're only going in because we're learning? They could have went in because it's raining. The rabbis are being strict. And there's room for stringency, but technically speaking, you can do anything. So when you see a shoal having kiddush, no problem. In a shoal, meaning not this room, but in that room, as, as some smaller shoals do, no problem. If we show a video in there, no problem. You have a lecture there, no problem. You can't, I wouldn't, you know, to do a comedy show, I don't think it would be, a, uh, my personal bet would say, I don't think, you know, if it's a clean comedy, it would be appropriate, but, but not for a shoal. That might be too much. I think that'd be a, I don't know, a fair example, right? It's fine. I have no problem with the comedy show. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy comedy. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's, that's too much. That's too light. That's lightheaded. So that you do out here. But everything else would be allowed. That's the Orzaruah's approach. We're sitting nice and pretty. Not in Israel. And we haven't yet explained what's the difference. Israel, Bavel, we'll come back to that question. But bottom line is, right, because if you made a stipulation, why doesn't the stipulation work in Bavel? Okay, we'll have to come back to that. But the bottom line is, all these types of activities would be allowed according to this approach. Is there a question? Uh, yes. Is this an argument? Is this an ah, argument? okay. Between Ravasi and Rava. It could be, it could be. It's, it's, it's not framed that, it, it, it could be. You know, it's not framed that way. That, that's the, the challenge of the Gemara. The Gemara doesn't seem, you know, normally you'd have, especially the way it's broken up. Um, sometimes, right, the Gemara is hard to uh, maneuver at times, right? So, uh, as Shelley's pointing out, another way of addressing this would say, Ravasi is saying one opinion, 
And Rava is saying a different opinion. Both the latter statements are Rava, and the first statement is Ravasi. It could be, it could be. None of the commentators say that, and I think, I think why they don't say that is because it's, the Gemara is not continuous. It breaks it up with the different uh, quotes from the Brisa, and then, and then goes on. As opposed to, sometimes you have a statement, and then you have a story which contradicts it. That story is understood to be undermining that earlier statement, and it's not framed, it's not, it's not structured that way. I think that's why it's not understood to be a debate. Uh, yes? Yeah, sociologically speaking, I agree with you 1,000%. You know, in, in Israel, shul is like an afterthought. You know, shuls are not, you know, shuls are not seen. It depends where. I'm, I'm speaking very broadly. But for many, shul is not like seen as a, a center. In, in America, certainly historically, now it's, it's shifting away from this, but certainly uh, for the past like few, you know, 50, 60 years, Shoal was like your JCC. Shoal was the center, right? And now again, it's, we're shifting away from that a little bit. It's, it's getting more dispersed, but Shoal was where your, all your social, Jewish social life revolved around Shoal, whereas in Israel, it's not like that. It could be that was the case historically. I don't know. I don't know. And I know philosophically you're saying, yeah, because Israel is a Jewish place and a holy place. It could be. It could be that that was the case as well. I don't know. It could, it could very well be that that was the case historically as well. Uh, certainly, the latter part of the 20th century, that is and, and, and was the case. Good. Uh, yes? Um, so it's a good question, right? So is that Kalos Roche? Depends on the call, right? I mean, if it's just like, hey, what's up? We're just going to, you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's, hard. it's a little hard to define. Again, it, it, according to the Orzarua, it seems like it's allowed. It's allowed. You'd be allowed to take a phone call. Again, would there be, the Orzarua is also acknowledging. Is there room for stringency? Is there room for a person to be strict? Yeah, yeah. And it would depend on the phone call. It would depend on the, the nature of the phone call, presumably. Yeah. Yeah, but they should take it out anyway because they're just living. Uh, 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 Dina asked after Davni, if I heard correctly. Yeah, it's an after Davni. Okay, after Davni, right? So right now we're not, to, again, I want to be clear. These are not the laws of Davni. These are the laws of Shul. Two separate things, okay? Let's, let's read the next approach, which is a little bit more stringent. This is the Ramban. The Ramban says, um, El Lomar is to say, he's explaining the Gemara, Shein Masnin, the, the Tanai, the stipulation was, Im Hutzrechu, if, ear, if the people of the city needed, Lahachil Bahem Anim, to feed the poor, Ola Shkivan Sham, or to have them sleep there, Mutter, that's allowed. And similarly, all their needs, according to the time, meaning if, if it's judged according to the time that there's a real need, right? What, what the Ramban is saying is that the allowance, this tanai, is not a free-for-all. It's not that you and I could drink there. What it means is that in a community, if they, and this historically happens, it doesn't happen so much in shulzis, it still happens in, in, in certain churches, right? But if a person needs, a, if the poor don't have a place to sleep, where did they go? They went to the shul. If the poor needed, and they used to feed them in the shul, the shul was basically a homeless shelter, right? That's what the shul functioned. By, by the way, that's where the original institution of St. Kiddush and Avdallah in davening, presumably, most understand, came, that's the simple read of the Gemara, came from this idea that the shul basically housed people who didn't have a place to go, 
That's where they slept. That's where they ate. They brought some food over there. And therefore, that's what it means. Ramban's saying doesn't mean that you and I could have a coffee there. No, 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 no. What it means is that if there's an absolute need, there's a real need. There are poor people who don't have a place to go. Okay, so the shul's a good place. It's, a, it's, a, it's warm. It's a, fine. Shul's a good communal center. Have them in the shul. Eat, feed them in the shul. But to just have a kiddush there, not a chance. Right? So the Ramban is a little bit more, this is how the Ramban understands the Gemara. What the Ramban is saying is that the truth, the, the, the Tanai, the stipulation is not to say that you and anyone could drink or eat over there. Right? You're only allowed to do so in, in, in pressing times. And therefore, that explains, by the way, why the rabbis had to say that the reason we're going in is only because we're learning. Right? They did, right? Because a little bit of rain, right? Could, could, you know, did that make it like, is that equivalent to poor people needing a place to eat? Mm, no. Could they have gone somewhere else? Yeah. Could they have gone to a different home? Sure, right? Could they have gone outside and been talking? Probably, right? So basically the Ramban has a simpler understanding of the Gemara. The Gemara is basically saying, really you can't eat or drink in a shul, okay? The only time you're allowed to do so is in Babylonia and Bavel, since they made the stipulation, you are allowed to do these things, but only if it's a real pressing need. Okay, so to, to have a kiddush in a shul, no. To have a movie in a shul, no. Right, all those things would not be allowed. Again, unless it's a pressing need. If there are, if there, if we're taking Ukrainian refugees and all we had was one room, we'd say sure, you could go and sleep in our shul, you could eat in our shul, but just you and I want to have a coffee there. The answer would be no. Okay, so again, let's just review before we get to the next approach. Approach number one, the uh, the the Or Zarua, he says that no, outside of Israel, you're allowed to have all neutral activities in a shul because they're made on stipulation. The Ramban says you're only allowed to do neutral activities. The, the stipulation did not allow neutral activities as a carte blanche whenever you want, but rather it's only when there's a real pressing need. Otherwise, you cannot engage in those neutral activities. Okay, and that's how he reconciles that Talmudic statement. Let's see a third approach, which is uh, going to, let's jump to source number 11, okay? Um, okay, so source number 11 is Tosfos. Okay, the Tosafists on that same page, they take a rather uh, stringent approach and a very interesting read of the Gemara. But again, they're all bothered by that contradiction in the Gemara, which on the one hand implies you could do things because of the Tanai. At the same time, it says the stories imply that you cannot. So says Tosos, but to Knesio Shul Bavel al Tanai Hein that that the Gemara said that Shuls in, Iz- in Bavel are made with a stipulation, wrote Salomar as if to say, Kolzman Shehein Betalin. You know when you're allowed to do these usual activities? Only when they are batel. Batel means they are no longer in use. Doesn't mean davening's over. It means they are no longer a shul. The, sing- the people stop davening there. Okay? How does he prove that? Okay, brings one proof from somewhere else. His proof is, why do the rabbis not want to enter into the shul? Because the rain. They had to justify it. Right? So basically, he's bothered by the same question we asked. How do you reconcile the Gemara? On the one hand, it says there's a stipulation allowing neutral activities. At the same time, we find the rabbi is not wanting to go in there because of the rain, which is neutral activity. So the way he answers is that, you know what it means that Al-Tanahin has to do? It means when the shul is no longer functional, it's destroyed. Okay, let's say the shul gets destroyed. Okay, or it no longer, everyone moves out of town and, or from, the, you know, from downtown and, and the shul is now desolate, it's empty. That's when you're allowed to do neutral activities because it's made with the stipulation. The way Tosos understands it is the stipulation only works when it's no longer a functioning shul. Okay, let's, let's keep on reading for a second. What the, what the original statement where of Asi was saying is when it's destroyed. That's when the stipulation works. 
the daf, and now he addresses the, the, the million dollar question. Why the distinction between Bavel and Israel? Why, why dif- differentiate? The dafkala osan shebebavel mahani etznai. It's specifically those outside of Israel that the stipulation works for. Because God willing, we'll have the redemption speedily in our days. The shoals that are known, where we have a tradition, shoals that are functional outside of Israel, we have a tradition that somehow they're going to make re, re, you know, whatever. They'll make their way to, to Israel somehow. Whatever that means, okay? But a shoal that's destroyed, it's not, it's not going to come with us. It's going to stay behind. It'll lose its holiness. But those in Israel, even the destroyed ones, the stipulation doesn't help. It's in Israel, and it kind of goes along with the lines of you were saying, it, its holiness remains forever. So Tosfus is saying, he's taking a very stringent approach. He's saying this stipulation does not help while the shul is functioning. It only helps for after the shul is destroyed or no longer functional, no longer in use, then you're allowed to eat and drink. In Israel, a destroy, right? You go to the Chorba, right? In Israel, you go to those, you know, in Yerushalayim, you go to these shuls. So according to, according to Tosvos, even after a shul is destroyed, and okay, you would not be allowed to eat or drink in a shul that is destroyed in Israel. Only in a shul that's destroyed, no longer functional outside of Israel. That's what the stipulation is. So again, going back to the Gemara, that's why the rabbis didn't want to go in because the rain. Because you can't do that in a functional shul. That's how the Ramban, uh, Tosos understands his Gemara. So again, let's just review. According to Tosos' approach, can you have a Kiddush in Shul? Absolutely not. Can you show a movie in Shul? Absolutely not. Can you have a lecture in Shul? No. Can you feed the poor in a Shul? His answer would be also no. Right? You have to find somewhere else. Okay? Can you go and sleep, have people sleep there? Who need to play sleep? The answer is no. You'd have to find somewhere else. Okay? It's not saying don't feed the poor. The point is that Shul's not the place to do it. Right? So, so the point is that we have three different approaches and how to understand the Gemara with very, very significant ramifications. We have one approach that says, outside of Israel, you're allowed to eat and drink in a shul. Great. You can't do something frivolous. But you could eat or drink in a shul. You could have a neutral conversation in a shul. You can't just be sitting around and kibitzing. But you could do neutral things in a shul. Fine. There's room for stringency, but that's not obligated. That's approach number one. Approach number two, no. Even neutral activity is not allowed. It's only allowed in a time of real need. If you really need to, you could be using your shul for eating, for drinking, for neutral activities. But if there's no real, like feeding the poor, that's a real need. But outside of that, uh uh-uh. And then you have the third approach, which says, even in a time of great need, you still can't do so. This stipulation is only going to be effective after the shul is no longer functioning. But as long as it's a functioning shul, you can't even feed the poor. You certainly can't just have a kiddush in a shul according to this third approach. Now, this third approach, by the way, is echoed by the Rambam, okay, Maimonides. And so let's just, so one thing we're going to have to think about is if we were the Jewish, now let's say we were writing the Jewish code of law. We were the authors of the Shulchan Arach, of, of, we were the, the Rav Yosef Karo, Ramosha Israelis. These are the authors uh, codifying Jewish law, right? We have these three different opinions. Which one of these opinions would we codify, right? Uh, who would we go with? Uh, which, which approach would seem to be the most logical? So I'll tell you just to, to foreshadow and we'll, we'll stop over here. But as a general rule, the author of the Shulchan Aruch usually goes with the Rambam, Maimonides, right? And Tosvot, excuse me, and the Ramar Moshe Israelis, who is the Ashkenazi posek, usually will go with Tosvos, right? So you would imagine, and we'll see, we'll see what the Shulchan Aruch does, if we were to be betting right now on what the bottom line law would be, it's probably the most stringent view, which is the view of Tosvos and the Rambam. Okay, we'll have to see what the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah actually rule like, and we'll have to come back and ask ourselves, 
it, our practices in line with, with Jewish law, right? So, before, so now you have to come back next week before you go ahead and uh, say a word other than, than davening and shul or, or have a drink of water. Uh, we'll have to come back. We'll pick up next week. But yes, sir. Uh, 